We're in 1 Peter, if you have a Bible there and want to follow along. And I was uh, noticing this week that uh, our time on the topic of suffering is rapidly drawing to a conclusion, and I kind of feel glad about that because this thinking about suffering is not something I enjoy doing. But I'm so grateful to know that God knew we would go through times of suffering. There would be times where we hurt, sometimes physically hurt. Some of our folks are going through physical problems right now where they hurt. But, you know, sometimes emotional hurts can be just as painful, if not more so. There are going to be times, the Bible says, that we're going to suffer. And how do we respond during those times? How are we to respond? In 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to read just a few verses here. and Then I'll pray and share with you what I believe the Lord's laid on my heart for today. In 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. I've entitled this a bizarre response to suffering. As you read, if, you, if you've caught some of what he's saying here, it's bizarre. The response that he says we are to have when we suffer is not normal. It's not natural. And it is that response that we're going to explore today. So let's ask the Lord to meet with us and help us through it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your time giving it to us. Thank you, Lord, that we can call upon you. Know full well that you desire for us to understand your word one of the purposes for your sending your Holy Spirit. So I'd ask that your Spirit would indeed quicken our minds and help us to understand these truths, that when suffering does come our way, that we can respond to your glory. We need your help, Lord, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I looked a couple words up here in this first verse. Think it not strange. Well, the word strange here the literal translation is to be a guest. Be a guest. It's a little bit, I think, like what you might feel when you go to a church for the first time. When we are on vacation, oftentimes we'll go and visit a church. And though I've been in church all my life, before I was born I was in church, <laughs> and I've always been in church, Going to a new church, there's just something unsettling about it. What are they like? Will they like me? Will they be friendly? And, and this feeling that we have here is tied up in the word strange, to appear strange. Don't think it's strange. 
concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. And this little phrase, to try you, is what a scientist would do in an experiment. When he's taking this compound and he's experimenting with it to see what it'll do. If I take this compound and mix with this compound and stir them up real good, what's going to happen? <laughs> well, that's the thought behind this, which is to try you or to test you to see what comes out. When a hurtful or a burning trial comes into your life, he says, don't think it's inappropriate. That's literally what he's saying here. When a trial comes to you, stop thinking that that's inappropriate. <laughs> if something bad happens, all of a sudden, why me? <laughs> why did that happen to me? Lord, why did you allow that to happen to me? As if to say, I'm special. <laughs> I don't deserve trials. Nothing bad should happen to me. Which is foolish when you stop thinking about it. What makes us special? Understand, first of all, the trial has a purpose. When trials come into our lives, they're not just coincidences. They're allowed for a very distinct purpose. And that purpose is to test you, to try you, to see what's inside. How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond giving God glory? Or are you going to respond like everybody else in the world that doesn't know God is going to respond? Angry, bitter, accusational, blaming somebody for it. So when trials come, they're for a purpose. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, But there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. I like this next phrase, but God is faithful. So when the temptation or trial comes into your way, he says, don't forget, God is faithful who will not suffer or allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Here's the point. We focus a lot on the last of the verse that says when a temptation or trial comes into your life, God's not going to give you something too big. We focus on the too big. And then we often say, I don't know, this seems too big for me now. I'm not sure I'm going to get through this now. Boy, this hurts me now. Wow, I don't think I can take it. You're missing the point. The point is, when trials come, we're to focus on the God who is faithful. That's the point. The point is, God will not give you something that's going to put you under, but he says the point of the story is, God is faithful. Remember to focus on him. Our focus in trials must stay on a faithful God. I will never leave you or forsake you, he said. God monitors every trial we go through and provides a means of successfully enduring those trials. In 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 1, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, Paul said. And we sent Timotheus, or Timothy, our brother, and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it has come to pass, and ye know. Paul decided to stay at Athens, but he sent a small entourage, including Timothy, to go to Thessalonica. 
to be an encouragement to them. But they were all fretting and they were rubbing their hands together and fearful because they heard the trials that Paul was experiencing. And he said, I already told you we're going to go through trials. He said, you've got to understand there was a reason for this. So I'm going to send Timothy to be an encourager to you to help you understand that God will see you through the trials. Paul sent Timothy to comfort you concerning your faith, it says. I like this. In Hebrews 3.12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He says, But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We don't use the word this way much anymore, but it says to exhort one another daily. The word exhort comes from a word which means to run alongside and to encourage. To run alongside and encourage. Can't you just see the marathoner? And he's out there and he's running, and he's long about mile 21 and he's dying. Now, I cannot fathom what it would be like to run 21 miles. I have a hard enough time to get in the car and drive that far. But to run 26 miles, that's insane. So he's been running for 21 miles, and there's nothing left inside. He's given it all. And bless his heart, a guy comes next to him and starts running and has, has renewed energy. And he says, you can do it. You can do it. Come on, you can make it. You can do it. You can finish this. The man came along and encouraged him. That's the word here. Exhort. Exhort one another daily. Encourage one another daily, he said. So church should be a place of encouraging each other through the trials. When we get together like this on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, what it should be is times of encouraging. Oh, you're going through a hard time. I'm sorry to hear that. I'll pray for you. Is there anything I can do to be a help to you? What are we doing? We're encouraging them in their trial to help them through the trial. And that ought always be the testimony of the church. Thirdly, in Galatians 6, 2, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, the Old Testament law was, was, was really restrictive. And when Jesus came along and died on the cross, he introduced a new law. Here's part of it. Bear ye one another's burdens. Be concerned about each other. Love one another. Bear each other's burdens. Help carry them through the difficult times. Believers are charged with helping carry the burden of others' trials. Just this week, and many of you know this, Victoria Ringer, who is part of the establishment of this church, has not been able physically to be out for quite some time. She's in glory now, praise the Lord. No longer suffering. She had a nasty bout with cancer and it took her to heaven. But I was so blessed as I learned individual after individual from our church that ministered to her as she was going through a very difficult time. They, they rallied around her and ministered to her. That's really what we are charged with, is running alongside those that are hurting and being encouraged to those. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, it says, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I hope that's your testimony. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus. As you think back over your past week, would this include you? 
all who live godly in Christ Jesus. Perhaps you had a slip up this past week, but is it your intention? Is it your desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Well, let me finish the passage here because it says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's not my favorite part of the verse. <laughs> you see, godly living attracts trials. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Here, when I came to Christ and I gave my heart to Christ, and I said, Lord, I'm, I want to sell out to you, and I want to live a godly life, and I want, I want you to lead me and guide me. I'm submitting my life to you. It makes total sense to me that God would say, oh, I'm so pleased with that, which he is. I'm going to protect you from any hurt coming your way. Doesn't that make sense? I'm saved now. I'm a child of the king. I've trusted the Lord for salvation. So God's going to protect me, and I'm not going to be hurt any time again for the rest of my life. I mean, that makes total sense, right? I had a little problem with that. When many years ago now, back in the 80s, my son developed meningitis. And I'm holding him in my arms, and he stops breathing. And come to find out, he went to heaven. He died. The Lord, I'm in Bible college. The Lord, I sold out to you. I gave you my heart. Lord, I can't think of any gross sins that I've been doing. I'm not perfect, but I can't think of any reason why you'd take my son. <laughs> Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, what's the deal here, Lord? It doesn't make sense. And there was a time of not understanding by God's grace, not a time of bitterness, only God's grace, but not understanding. I'm starting after all these years to understand. You see, God takes trials, and just like a doctor would prescribe a particular medication, God prescribes particular trials for things he wants to do in us to conform us more into his image. I had no idea how insensitive I was as a young believer to the hurts of others. I grew up being taught, you're supposed to be tough. Tough. Tougher on people and expect them to be tough. I didn't understand that part of a minister's job was to hurt when they hurt. I know that now. Because God had a trial to help perfect me and to make me more like Christ. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Well, Christianity's got a problem. I don't mean this disrespectful, but Christianity's got a problem. And here's some of why it attracts trials. You see, Christianity condemns all other religions. Now, by that, I don't mean I didn't go out and I, I tell other people, oh, you've you're got a bad religion. I don't, I don't do that. As we went out door knocking yesterday, there's not one of those people that I said, you're going to a bad church. Never did that. 
Not one time did I condemn them. One lady opened the door and we told them where we're from. She said, oh, we're not interested. We're atheists, she said. I didn't start preaching at her and getting all upset at her. I didn't do that. But Christianity, by its very nature, John 14, 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's exclusive. In Acts 4, 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In Revelation 20, 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Christianity is a very exclusive religion. Jesus said, I am the way. There is no other way. Someone comes to the Father through Jesus or they don't come at all. Salvation is not a process of works, for it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. We come by faith. And we trust that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, not because we deserved it, but because He loved us. Christianity is exclusive. It is, according to the Bible, the only way. Oh, but pastor, there's many ways to heaven. <coughs> Sounds great. But that's not what God said. And God, who loved man so much that he sent his son to die for man, can make the rules. And God says it's going to be through faith in my son or not at all. Christianity also proposes a life of living contrary to the desires of the flesh. Titus 2.12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Romans 8.13, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Galatians 5.24, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. 1 Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Our bodies, we crave a life of eating, drinking, and being merry. Whatever makes us feel good. God says to say no to fleshly desires. Say no. Don't allow your flesh, your body, to control you. Be submitted to God. In Matthew 6.20, there's something different about Christianity. It promises rewards after this life. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. In 1 Peter 1.4, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. In 1 Peter 5.4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. You see, 
our greatest rewards are awaiting for us in heaven. The world impatiently wants all of their desires fulfilled now. That's why the younger generations, younger generations, couldn't wait like their parents did to get all the niceties in their home. They instead put everything on credit. And they filled their home up with all these wonderful things and then started receiving monthly bills. Where'd these come from? God says, look to the future, a time in the future, where as you live your life for me today, rewards will be awaiting for you that will last not just for this life, but for eternity. And then, there's something different about Christianity. It predicts persecutions. I read the verse, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but also Matthew 10, 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, Jesus told his disciples. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. 1 Peter 2, 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Have you noticed how we don't like pain? Most of you, anyway, don't like pain. And we try every way possible to avoid it. I'll tell you what, the pharmacies are getting rich off the fact that we don't like pain. Doctors get rich over the fact that their populace does not like pain. The world will do practically anything to avoid it while believers should not be surprised by it. But here's the bizarre part about it. It's not just that believers should expect to have suffering in their life because that's part and parcel to becoming a Christian. God said, because you have trusted me, I'm going to allow you to go through trials to perfect you, to shape you. Just like a potter would take a piece of clay. And he'd work that clay and work that clay and work that clay. And he'd take his thumb sometimes and really dig in. Oh, that, if that clay could talk, could you imagine what it would say? You have to cover your ears. <laughs> because of that pressure. Ah, that's what God does through trials in our lives. He allows pressure. Because what is he doing? He is shaping the most amazingly beautiful vessel in us. And in order for that vessel to be shaped accordingly, it must have pressure. Verse 13, he says, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now, <laughs> at first glance, it seems here like Peter must have had a few two blows to the head. Maybe he's smoking something here. I don't know. For him to say, you're supposed to go through suffering and rejoice just doesn't make sense. But that's exactly what he said. And he tells us why. Our response to these fiery trials should be rejoicing. Why? Because of the glory that's coming. 
explains a little bit here in Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also glorified together. Those who suffer with Christ. Think of His disciples. After Jesus went to heaven, His disciples carried on His program of reaching folks for Christ. But oh, those disciples experienced a great amount of persecution for simply standing for Christ. Ah, but because they chose to stand in spite of the persecution, they will be rewarded in eternity, he said, because God is glorified in and through their stand. In 2 Corinthians 1.7, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. As you suffer with Christ, you don't buckle, but your faith remains strong in Him. You will be blessed. Philippians 3.10, Paul said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. Paul said the way that I will become like Christ, the way I will be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, is by suffering like He suffered. So by knowing what is coming, we can be empowered to endure the fiery trials. About three times a week, I get on my treadmill. And I experience a significant amount of torture. It is self-inflicted. But here I'm on this treadmill, and I'm walking away, walking away, walking away, walking away. And, 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 and all of a sudden, the sweat starts pouring down. This is not perspiration. This is old sweat. It's pouring down me, walking away. I learned early on that I could not just get on a treadmill and walk indefinitely because it is so mentally torturous just to do nothing but walk. So I started praying. So I developed a prayer list that I go through that is real similar every time I pray, every time I walk. So I'm on the treadmill, and I'm walking. And I found out that as long as I'm focused, really intensely focusing on these, these needs, some of you in here, as I'm focusing on you and your needs and begging God on your behalf, instead of my focusing on the fact that I'm about to die, my heart is softened towards you. And all of a sudden I look, and I see that I've gone 40 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour, and, 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 and I get off of it, and yeah, I'm dead tired. But I endured the torture because of where my brain was. I was focusing on God. Guess what could happen to you if a trial came your way, and instead of you focusing on the trial, oh, this hurts! Oh, I can't believe they said that about me. I can't believe the bank wants their payment on time or whatever happens to be that you're going through. Instead of focusing on that which is causing your pain, what if you instead chose to use that time to focus on God and His goodness? Oh, that God would be glorified. Rejoicing by faith enables us to partake or share in Christ's sufferings. This was also surprising. It says, uh, if you do this, 
ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So he said, as you go through trials, sufferings, you need to rejoice. But if that's not bad enough, he said, you will be glad with exceeding joy. I looked it up. The actual original word means to jump for joy. To jump for joy. You, as you comprehend the purpose behind this trial and what God is trying to do in and through you and how he is trying to be glorified in your life, it should bring such a glory in your soul that you can't help it. You just want to jump for joy. In 1 Peter 1, 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found, here's the key, unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Something about the sufferings that we endure, trusting in Christ, when He does return, He will be glorified in our sufferings because we chose to stand in Him. Jesus will be glorified when He returns to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. In Matthew 25, 21, His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. You see, faithful believers will experience the joy of the Lord. As you go through trials, and you don't collapse, and you don't get bitter, you don't get angry, and you don't give up on God and start accusing Him, if you loved me, you wouldn't allow this. Instead of that, you go through the trial simply trusting Him, realizing that He knows what He's doing, and it is to be used for your good and His glory. Verse 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, in other words, if somebody says something bad about you because you're taking a stand for Christ, you're one of those Christians, they say. I don't believe that you really believe that garbage, they say, being reproached for Christ. Happy are ye, and I say, what? For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he's glorified. Here is what I see, a supernatural response to suffering. I don't know how else to, to describe it, but supernatural. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, he said, happy are ye. Now, again, I looked it up. It didn't say you will be happy. It didn't say eventually you'll come around to understand the truth and finally, oh, now I see it. I'll be. It says you are happy. It's used as an adjective, describing the one going through the trials. The one being reproached for the name of Christ said, you are happy. I said, now I'm thinking about this. If I went through a time where I got screamed at, or hollered at, or perhaps spit on because I said I'm a Christian, is my first reaction going to be I'm happy? He said, yes. James chapter 5, verse 11 says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. 
in 1 Peter 3.14, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. <laughs> when we go through a time of reproach for Christ, he said, there's going to be something that's going to happen to you. You will be happy. How can you be happy? For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Because as you're taking a stand for Christ and are experiencing the reproach, good news, you're not alone. The spirit of God is there with you, encouraging, and where do you suppose the happiness comes from? Him. Him in you. In you. He's rejoicing. He's doing a happy dance inside of you as you're reproach, being reproached and standing for Christ. He's ecstatic, and that comes out in your emotion. You're happy. In Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight of the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Spirit rests upon the sufferer. It is the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit of glory and of God. In Isaiah 11, 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. It is the Holy Spirit himself who rests upon the believer, taking a stand for God. You will never suffer alone. He will be with you. Isaiah 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And of course, the end of Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Never. You'll never be alone. Here's the stark contrast of responses. The world speaks of evil of Christ. But in the life of the believer, he's glorified. The world condemns Christ because he condemns their ways. They don't like somebody telling them they can't do what they want. They don't like somebody telling them, no, you can't live like that. They don't like that. They don't like submitting to a higher power. 1 Peter 4.3, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not to them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. In other words, the world can't believe that you're not doing what they're doing. The world is living in excess. The world is out there getting drunk all the time, shooting up with drugs all the time. That's the world's response to their trials. And they can't figure out why you're not doing the same thing. They condemn Christ because he condemns their ways. But the world will one day glorify God because of your good works. 1 Peter 2.12, having your conversation, your manner of life, how you live your life, 
honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. In verse 15, he gives to us an inappropriate suffering for the believer. In verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer. If you murder and are arrested and put in prison facing the consequences, you're going to suffer. Makes sense. But if you're a Christian, he says, don't suffer like that. Don't suffer. Don't have your suffering be for bad things, he said. Or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody <laughs> in other men's matters. No believer should suffer the consequences from being these things. These sins are even abhorrent to the world. They, they, they can't stand them. Only suffering for righteousness' sake is acceptable with God. 1 Peter 2.20 For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So if you get... If you get buffeted or beat up because you had a smart mouth and somebody couldn't take it and they just let you have it, there's no glory in that. You deserved it. But if you were living for Christ, doing nothing wrong at all, and somebody comes up and attacks you, he said you can be glorified in that. No believer should blemish the name of Christ by following after the flesh. Ephesians 5.3, But fornication, and uncleanness, and covetousness, let it not be named among you as become the saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. How you live your life, your lifestyle, should never hinder the gospel of Christ. Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation, your lifestyle, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let your lifestyle reflect well the gospel of Christ. So you go and you tell your, your, your message, your life-changing message, that Jesus saved you. You share that with somebody else. And they say, I'm not going to listen to you. You live just as wickedly as I do. He said, don't live like that. Because it will destroy any chance of you sharing Christ. Our lifestyle should not hinder the gospel. So lastly, the ultimate goal of our suffering for the faith. Verse 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, there's the foundation. If you're going to suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. If a believer suffers because of his faith in Christ, he should not be ashamed. Instead, he should glorify God. The disciples rejoiced as they suffered for his glory. Acts 5, 38, And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. 
For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed when they had called the apostles and beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and to let them go. And when they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus. The disciples were out there preaching the name of Jesus Christ, and they were arrested, and they were beaten, and once they were dismissed, they were rejoicing. What? Rejoicing. Because God was glorified. In James 1, 2 and following, My brother encountered all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Suffering has a way of making us more patient. And patience perfects us in Christ. Paul and Silas glorified God in their suffering. In Acts 16, 24 and 25, who, having received such a charge, thrust them in the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Here they are in this stinking, musty prison cell. And they're shackled in. They've been abused and beaten. And at midnight, instead of griping and complaining, they prayed together. And they began singing praises to God so loudly, all the other prisoners heard them sing. Our suffering can be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, that know but now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold, all kinds of temptations. That, in order that, the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. In other words, God has a purpose behind your suffering. And that purpose is to bring glory to His Son, Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, but it hurts! I dare say it does not hurt as much as He did. And he died having no sins. When we suffer, we're guilty of every ounce of suffering we receive. And if our lives could bring glory to the one who saved us, what a blessing that could be. I got a phone call last night from Ron Roth, bless his heart. Finally got home after two weeks or so and the rehab facility after being in the hospital from urinary tract infection. They were so worried about him because last time it turned into sepsis. Very, very serious. Finally, he got to go home. I visited Ron several times while he was there in the rehab facility. Every time I'd take him a stack of tracks. Why? 
because they were gone every time. I said, Ron, what are you doing with these things? Eating them? Every time, stacks of tracks, and they were all gone. What are you doing? Here he was in pain, recovering from this very painful situation. And everybody that came into his door, he couldn't wait to tell them how wonderful his Savior was. You suppose that had an impact? Here this man is suffering, and instead of him feeling bad for himself, he's telling me about the one that loves him? Wow. Guess who gets glorified? God does. If you're suffering today, my heart goes out to you, and I hate it that you're suffering. But Peter's got an admonition for us. And that admonition is, let's not get bitter. Let's not be accusational, be thrusting our hand at God, say, how dare you? Instead of that, let's realize perhaps God's got a plan, and that plan is to make you more like Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your love. You died on the cross for us, and we thank you for that. Three days later, you arose from the dead. I thank you for that. Lord, because of your suffering, we now today have in you, the Bible says, a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. When we suffer, you understand now. Because you experienced it yourself. And your heart aches as we ache. Dear Lord, this is a hard truth. And so, Spirit of God, would you give us understanding for this truth? And help us, Lord, as suffering comes our way, to not get bitter, but to grow strong in our faith and to glorify you in it and to allow those trials to perfect us, making us more like you. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I wonder this morning, how has the Spirit of God spoken to your heart this morning? Is there a trial that you're experiencing right now that you feel instead of drawing you closer to God is pushing you away? Well, my Bible said God's not the one that's moving. How about you realize that God loves you and loves you enough to allow you to suffer. Perhaps you came in this morning and you don't even know for sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. I've got good news for you. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of all mankind. And though it makes sense for us to somehow try to earn it, we can't, it's impossible. The only way we can go to heaven, he said, is by acknowledging the fact that we're sinners. We're sinners. There's no sin in heaven. So it becomes impossible for us to go to heaven, which is exactly why he had to come and die, to pay for our sins. Once we acknowledge that we're sinners, to come to him by faith, believing in him, and transferring our hope for heaven onto his shoulders. Has there been a time where you've been saved, where you trusted Jesus to forgive your sins and to trust you, to trust him? I wonder, I wonder with nobody looking around, is there anyone this morning who would say, Pastor, I don't know for sure that heaven is my home when I die, but I want to know, would you pray for me? Anyone would put their hand up so I can see it, nobody else. 
I can pray for them. Anyone, pastor, pray for me. I don't know for sure I'm going to heaven, but I want to know. Please pray. Anyone? Dear Lord, thank you for this time, and thank you for working in our hearts. Continue the work you've begun, and we'll thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.